Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Trombones too loud. We've all heard that, haven't we? We're all brothers in this regard. That's it for trombone players. There can be no trombone player who's ever worked professionally who hasn't heard this at least a million times in their life. So let's try and look at this from um, the point of view of us, the instrumentalist, the conductor and the composer. Um, it's something that I've battled with over the course of my my career and when I listen back to old recordings I'm not bloody surprised I used to play so loud. <laughs> um, it's I think in many ways we bring it on ourselves um, because we do have this nuclear weapon in our hands that can basically wipe out <laughs> everything before us. Um, and there are lots of different points to this. The first, the first thing is that we get frustrated with as trombonists is we are the first port of call if the balance is wrong. A, a conductor just puts their hand up, says trombone's too loud. There was only one conductor I worked with, um, George Schulte, Sir George Schulte, who I remember when I was in the London Symphony and there was a big, you know, oh, Sir George, we must do something about the brass, they're animals, they're playing far too loud. And actually, we probably were. But, you know, it's like, what are we going to do with the brass sort of thing? And um, very well, very well, I will listen. And, and he listened, you know, we're doing Bruckner 8. And he said, um, I tell you what the problem is, the brass are not too loud. Strings, why aren't you working? And he was the only one who said that. I think also there's kind of this feeling that the Vienna Philharmonic brass section doesn't play very loud. It might surprise you to learn that um, I played sometimes much louder in the Vienna Philharmonic than I did in the London Symphony. You just could not get through the string sound. You could not get through it. It's like this wall of sound in Vienna. First of all, they get you in this sandwich. So you've got the double basses behind you and the strings in front of you and they just lock you in there and you can't get through. I went back and did a month, I don't know, three, four years ago. And one of the things we did was um, the last act of Götterdämmerung in um, a concert performance. And in the time that I've been away, the string sections got even stronger. They're younger, they're stronger, they're better. And it was literally, of course, you couldn't see, but there was this, I had this sort of like image of a wall in front of me, this wall of sound going up from the strings. And, you know, there are probably thousands of trombone players out there listening to this, thinking how jealous they are. Well, you have every right to be jealous. It was bloody fantastic. And... And I remember when I first went there, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to show them, here, show them I'm here. There's a recording of um, Night on a Bear Mountain with Valery Gergiev, 
Vienna Philharmonic 2001, I think we did it. And it was like, okay, you know, yeah, da, 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 bang, in I come. And um, they just played louder. <laughs> they kind of looked up at me like, you know, you're not getting away with that. And it was absolutely incredible. Um, so anyway, that's the nice, that's the really good story. Um, that's the nice part of it. You know, let's go back to that thing of us bringing it on, upon ourselves. You know, I, after I left the orchestra in Vienna, I started doing some conducting and I was very appalled to find that one of the first things that I said was trombone's too loud. <laughs> because you're standing there with a score in front of you and um, you know what you need to hear. And in many points, it's not the trombones. Um, so I think we bring it upon ourselves in that we don't look at the score, we don't study the score, we don't know what's important. And, and I have to tell you, many, many conductors trusted me um, because they knew that I knew when it was important and I knew when I had to get out of the way. Uh, there were many who didn't trust me. <laughs> um, Simon Rattle, Maris Janssen's... Seiji Ozawa, oh, we're always very sceptical, um, you know, and every time, every time they, they saw me, I, you know, I, 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 I should have become a palm reader, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I know their, their palms intimately, you know, because that's what I looked at most of the times that I played for them. And in many ways, it didn't, in many ways, I was young and stupid. And in many ways, it was my fault. You know, I, I, I did... You know, folks, no trombone player ever got famous for playing quietly, did they? You know, if you think about it, if you think about the ones who we really know in, in orchestras, you know, Joe, myself, the guys in Chicago, you know, we're all kind of famous for making a bit of a noise. Um, you know, it's like, it's like you don't... Oh, maybe, maybe Jim Markey. Maybe Jim Markey's the only one where we'd say, you know, that guy's really famous for his wonderful, tasteful bass trombone playing. So yeah, there, there you go, Jim. Um, but most of us become famous for, for making a noise. And my, my hero was, was Dennis Wick. And, um, <laughs> you know, you might have seen, I've posted some of my, my favorite discs. One of them is uh, Walton One, London Symphony, Previn, with Dennis Wick in his absolute pomp. And um, it's a bit like, you know, where do you put the microphone? <laughs> there is no way you can put it. You might as well put it in the car park. He's coming through, you know. It's like in baseball, you know, with certain certain hitters, you know, maybe you might as well put the fielders in the crowd because you know where the ball's going. Same in cricket. There's a guy called Ben Stokes and the place for England. And when, when he gets going, there just is no way you can set the field. You know, the ball's going out the ground. <laughs> And Dennis was very much that kind of, of player. And I, uh, I copied that. So I went, when I went to the London Symphony, I was like um, mini Dennis, you know, I was, I was Dennis number two. And, um, and so some of the recordings are very exciting and some of them are not very nice. <laughs> so that's the first thing. We need to understand the score. We need to understand what we're gonna do. The, the, the other thing is, is, like I say, you know, about these, conductors they they spend the first part of their life 
locked in a room with a violin or a piano for eight hours of the day and then they move on to being locked into a room with a school for eight hours of the day. And then because they're brilliant, and they are brilliant, let's not get away from this. These are seriously brilliant people. And uh, all of a sudden they're responsible for a hundred people's lives. And they have no idea how to deal in, in, in this kind of... They are, they are leaders. They are leaders of a house. And they're responsible for the well-being of that house. Not many of them take that seriously, but they are. They're responsible for the emotional well-being of a house. Some of them, some of them are, you know, the, the two big opposites. Ricardo Muti and Michael Tilson Thomas. As people, as conductors, as musicals, musicians, they're very different. But they are leaders of a house. Um, and they, they take that role very, very differently. But they, nevertheless, they take that responsibility. Not many of them do. So MTT and uh, Ricardo Muti certainly do know how to care for a house and how to get the results that they want and how to, how to address, how to speak to an orchestra. Um, not many conductors, unfortunately, take the attitude that uh, my friend um, Peter Halash, the uh, very fine Hungarian conductor, um, he was recently conducting somewhere and, and he said, guys, in the brass section, Guys, I don't know this place. It's the first time I've been here. I don't know this acoustic. You do. You're at home here. Um, I don't want to put my hand up. I don't want to get on your back the whole time. Please, will you be responsible for the balance? Can you be sure that we hear the singers the whole time and that we hear what we need to hear? And he said, it was perfect. We never had any problems at all. You know, that's the way you, that you, you know, you get people on your side. But alas... It's not always that way. We all know the scenario of this, like, ah, oh, trombones, you animals, do you have to? We, the musicians, are trying to work, kind of attitude. And we've all seen that. And um, that's, you don't need a psychologist to tell you what's going to happen under those circumstances. Um, you know, it does tend to lead to a, a bit of a, a, the opposite reaction from the trombone section. Um, and, but, but I do, I do understand the, the conductor's situation. I understand what they're trying to get at. There's another thing right now that's really important at this point. I'm um, a bit of a amateur musical or recording historian. I tend not to buy new recordings. Um, I'm usually disappointed. If I do, they'd be live recordings. And I mean genuinely live, not sort of like, you know, live with pre-takes and retakes. Um, but if you go back and you listen to the old Furtwängler recordings with the Berlin Philharmonic, 1936, Brahms II from Earl's Court in London. Uh, Brahms IV, sorry. Oh my goodness gracious me, the trombones come in at the end of Brahms for like Armageddon to the point where I personally would be embarrassed to uh, play that loud. And you think, well, you know, maybe the boys had, you know, tried a bit of London pride or whatever, and or they were angry with him or whatever. And there's a 1956 recording with a different set of trombone players doing exactly the same thing with Furtwängler. I think it's 56, maybe it's 54. 
So it happens twice. Now you've got to remember this guy. If he didn't know Brahms, he knew someone who did know Brahms, and he's you know I mean he was around nineteen hundred. You know he was around at that time. Um. So so where has it all gone wrong? Why don't conductors want to hear what we do anymore? Well, um, one of my favourite recordings. Oh, there are two of them. A Schumann Symphony Number no. Four with the Vienna Philharmonic and Herbert von Karajan at the end of his life. And it's live. You can't buy it. It went around the Vienna Philharmonic, the live Schumann for. It is like standing in a wind tunnel. It is absolutely exhilarating. And I always had a you know, the impression that on carry-on recordings, the brass was somewhere in the distant background. But this, talk about in your face. I mean, brutal and devastatingly exciting. Absolutely phenomenal. I also have the recording they re did the next day for Deutsche Grammophon. <laughs> and the trombones and the brass are non-existent. Why is that? And again, another story to back that up. When I went to Vienna, the guys talked about, oh, when we played, when we did Otello with Carian, he used to turn to us and say, you know, meine Herren, you know, gentlemen, because it was gentlemen, actually still is. Um, <laughs> in the brass section, at least, the rest of the orchestra's got quite a lot of women now, but still is just, I think, yeah. And he said, what's the problem? Didn't you eat breakfast this morning? Come on. Blow! And it's like, no, I, I just can't believe this. I can't believe this. And because I, you know, I'd kind of found carry-on recordings, like I said, a bit dull, to be honest. Musically, no. But um, then I sort of dug a little deeper and talked to people, and they said, yeah, carry-on had this saying, ni tu, never tu. Nie too loud, nie too leise, nie too schnell, nie too langsam. Never too loud, never too, too, too quiet, never too fast, never too slow. Herbert von Karajan practically owned Deutsche Grammophon. He was the first of the commercial um, guys. And uh, Norman Lebrecht has got a good bit on this in his, his, his book, The Maestro Myth. And uh, he was the first one who started me thinking along these directions and uh you know i think he, i think even norman lebrecht said i think it was like you know he wanted to do a recording of mozart 40 you know where the where the german businessman could you know get in his mercedes and drive on the autobahn to go home you know and not have to turn turn the cassette up back in those days the cassette up louder when when it was pianissimo and quieter when it's fortissimo so he compressed the dynamics and then he'd go home you know and his wife would, you know give him a kiss and on 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 loosen his tie and offer him a glass of riesling as she you know cooked him a nice meal and mozart 40 was on in the background and they could have a conversation without having to turn the fortes down and turning pianos up so everything was compressed so the trombones don't play a very big role in that do they um, I once had um, a conversation with 
the great, the famous Aurel Nicolet, who died some ten years ago, the great flautist, who was first flute in the in the Berlin Philharmonic when um, Furtwängler was there from like 1945 to to whenever Carrion took over, and uh, I said, uh, you know, tell me about the time with Furtwängler. He said, oh, Furtwängler just wanted wanted risks, just. He didn't care if you made mistakes. Like, for example, in your case, you know, the, the trombone chorale from Brahms 1. You know, you know, he wanted the trombones to come in so quietly and just to create this, you know, oh, you know, and this magic. And he said, if they missed it twice out of three in a concert, he didn't care because he wanted that special moment. He wanted that one definitive, wonderful chorale. And these are his words. He said, and then that amateur... Carrion came in <laughs> and he hated, he hated people making mistakes because the trombones to play the chorale louder so it was more secure and he compressed the dynamics and he didn't want the risks, he wanted it more secure. And so Carrion set about doing these recordings with like the compressed slick polished dynamics his concerts it would seem were something completely different now why is it worth talking about this it's worth talking about this because we have a generation of conductors who have grown up listening to herbert von carrion recordings and herbert von carrion recordings have trumpets in the background and no trombones so that has become their concept of uh brass balance so there we have a problem. So the issue is partly on our side. And if we look at this technically, let's do a bit of a detour and look at this as trombone plays. The problem is, first of all, it's always trombones too loud and late. If we don't play clearly, if we do not articulate clearly, you're not going to understand it. The conductor is going to be saying, you know, you're late, you're late. And you're going to be sitting there going, I'm not, I'm not. Because where you're sitting, it doesn't sound late. And it's not the distance, ladies and gentlemen. Conductors think it is, and you like to think it is. You've got to get a bloody long way, like more than, more than 25 feet or 30 feet before there's a huge delay. It's not the distance. If you don't ping... Bah, the front of a note. If you go, bah, you are going to lose the first millisecond of that note at a distance. It, that will not resonate. The, you won't hear the note starting immediately. Well, you are. You can hear it. But if you do not ping the front of a note, it's going to sound late. Fact. End of. Finished. Um, that's the one thing. The other thing is, is the noise pollution which is this thing about playing, what do, they, what do we call it? Playing bricks, these big square notes. And so the middle of the note with all of this sound and it's just blocking the bassoons and blocking, you know, that we need to work more on the shape of notes. And again, conductors say, you know, trombones play the note and then make an immediate diminuendo. That's their rudimentary way of doing it. They don't, they kind of know what they want. They don't understand it. That's our job. We have to do that for them. They shouldn't have to do that. So if we're playing a note and we know that something else is more important, get out of the bloody way. Um, one of the main reasons 
why the Vienna Philharmonic is this incredible chamber music machine. And it is. It's because of the 300 performances a year in the Vienna State Opera that are done largely without rehearsal. I was talking to somebody about this this morning and he laughed because I was talking about something that happened with a conductor in an opera performance and I said, I've no idea who it was, but anyway, this happened. And he laughed. And you could hear him laughing that I didn't know who the conductor was. Well, we didn't. It was like, who's the conductor? Well, he's this guy who walks past me with a stick. His name was written up on the poster outside, but you didn't very often. I mean, some, some of them you knew, but not all of them. So there are no rehearsals and it's an open pit. And that means that, the, you know, there's no roof over the top. If you've got the orchestra, you've basically got the Vienna Philharmonic sitting there. And then there's a stage, slightly raised, you know, maybe eight, nine feet above the orchestra with the singers on it. And no rehearsals. That means that the responsibility for inter not only internal balance in the orchestra, but that the audience get to hear the singers lies with every single individual member of that orchestra. It is not, balance in many cases should not be an issue for a conductor. If we are blocking something that needs to be heard, don't be surprised if a conductor either A, puts their hand up, B, asks you to play quieter, or C, is rude to you. The other thing that I think we need to look at as trombone players is, you know, dynamics are not a decibel reading. Um, they, uh, they have an emotional meaning. What does mezzo piano, what does forte mean at that point in a Brahms symphony, in the Rite of Spring, in a Bruckner symphony, in, in Don Giovanni? What does it mean emotionally? What's it all about? It is not as much as the intellectuals want to legitimize the intellectualization of everything. You can't, you can't um, identify um, an emotion in that way. And these are emotional meanings. The problem that we face with conductors is they want a certain balance. Let's say, and I like this as well, you know, in Bruckner where the horns are biting and snarling and the trombones are kind of like the meat in the sandwich. They're creating this, this wonderful, meaty warmth. So conductors will often tell, you know, trombones less, 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 less. And what we do is we loss, we, we get the stuffing knocked out of it. We, we lose the intensity, we lose the bite. So we have to learn to, um, and this is this was a fantastic thing that Valery Gergiev once told me, I think I've said this in a previous podcast, where he said, you know, the ability to go from pianissimo to fortissimo without changing the decibel meter, you know, which is, yeah, okay, it's, it's an exaggeration, it's physically impossible, but you get the point, you know, that, it's, that the fortissimo is a, is a color. Um, and, and with a lot of the instruments that we play now are so efficient, we have to work to get those colors. Um, and, and this, I mean, this American thing of making the same sound from pianissimo to fortissimo. Okay, it's great. It's very noble. Fantastic. If you can do that, that's great. I can do it as well. I, I just choose not to. Because I want, if it's loud, I want it to sound loud. I want it to have the color of forte. I want to have the excitement of forte or fortissimo. 
Well, who wants to hear? Who wants to hear a fortissimo that's got the same sound as a pianissimo? What's the point? That's just like turning the volume upon your hi-fi. Um, so I think I think we should work technically not to become victims of our instrument, but in order to get the emotion of forte and fortissimo, we have to get the decibel level so loud on on these huge instruments that we play these days that we get the decibel level so high that you can't hear the woodwinds or the horns or the cellos um so that's the um that, that's another thing that i think might help the other thing is um that i think all of the time that we're playing we need to have one ear one part of our attention on who we're supposed to be playing with not underneath not above with if you take um, Strauss, Richard Strauss, um, I think the, the really amazing, the funny thing about that is the trumpet solo in Don Juan. Huh? What trumpet solo? There isn't a trumpet solo in Don Juan. It's in unison with the first violins. And it should be a, this new sound world, a mixture of trumpet and, and violin. You know, there are so many things. Vojak 8th Symphony. Bim, bam, bam, bam. Bim, bam, bam. Trombone and cellos. It should be a new sound world. There's a recording of me doing that with Colin Davis and the London Symphony Orchestra, and that is quite clearly not the case, because I, I beat the living heck out of it. And uh, it's probably wrong. But there you go. So I am not sitting here and saying, you know, I am holier than thou, and I never did this. Of course I did. And uh, very interestingly... John Williams um, said something about his concert in the Vienna Philharmonic about how um, the um, Star Wars march, I think it was, when the Vienna Philharmonic played it, was the way he'd always wanted to hear it. And because it was powerful without the aggression. And a bit of an inside story here, you know, he never liked the fact that we played Star Wars that loud when we did it with him. Um, um, and we, you know, but we were having too much fun. <laughs> And he's such a nice man, uh, you know, and, and he, he was wonderful anyway. But, you know, so I have I am not without guilt, as it were, myself. Um, so, you know, this this case of this case of, you know, conductors dropping the dynamic until the content, the stuffing, until it's just flabby, until there's no no intensity that happens because they don't know how else to do it. So we need to learn to drop the dynamic to keep the and to keep the intensity there. Um, the uh, again when I when I first went to to Vienna we did some stuff with Sage Ozawa and he dropped the brass dynamic down until they were literally not there they didn't exist and what you could hear was just kind of like a bit lethargic and I'm sure that's not what he intended he wanted it to be exciting but he wanted to hear the singer um, but as to as to my actual personal runnings runnings with 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 conductors. <laughs> You know, I can play really quietly and I love conductors and I, 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 you know, when they just tell you to shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, it's kind of depressing because I care. I love what I do. I practice. And not only do I love what I do, but I love them. I love the conductors. So to be permanently uh, told, uh, you know, you... It's too loud. It's too loud. Shut up! Shut up! They don't want to hear it. It's it's kind of kind of a bit a bit uh, a bit demoralizing. And 
over the 30 years that I played in, in orchestras, I did flip out a few times, I have to say. Um, there was one, <laughs> we were playing this uh, brass chorale in the ballet, guys, in the ballet in Vienna. That's where I drew the line. You know, if we're playing a, a, a ballet and there was a brass chorale and a conductor standing there with his hand up and he's quiet and you go quieter and you play less and less and less. And like I said, I can play really quiet. And then in the end, I just stopped playing and hung my trombone up in the concert. And this guy, I can't remember his name. This guy um, walked past and said, um, what were you doing? And I said, well, you, I thought there was a bit of an emergency. I thought there was a problem. You see, less than what I was playing was nothing. So I stopped. <laughs> I don't know how I got away with some of these things sometimes. Um, I also, another trick that I used to play, and uh, I am not going to name these guys because I still see them sometimes. <laughs> but what I used to do was, was with two of this happened with two of them where I would say to the section, you know, hey guys, stop playing, just mime, just mime. It, you know what's going to happen. And you tell everybody around you that you're miming. So the violas know, the trumpets know, everyone's watching this. And so like, you mime and you bet right on time, up comes the hand. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> and so then everyone around starts laughing, you know, and you go up to the conductor in the break and say, hey, uh, you know, I just wanted to say, I, I just, I'm, I'm fine, we're cool, but I think you've got a bit of a problem. Huh? What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, you see, the thing is, we haven't played anything for the last 20 minutes, and you keep putting your hand up. And uh, so when everyone was laughing, they were laughing at you. <laughs> One of these conductors then conducted the rest of the rehearsal with his back to the trombones. He didn't even look at us from that point on. So, you know, you do you do after a while. I mean, that, that said, given that I always want to do what a conductor is asking, you know. Um, and it's, But like I say, you, you reach the point sometimes you know and i mean with one conductor i actually went to the president of the vienna philharmonic and said look i just want you to know that out of loyalty to uh the 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 verein you know the organization and respect of my colleagues the trombone section have decided we are going to play the concert tonight i said well, what what are you talking about i said well you know, Maestro keeps putting his hands up. Well, we've stopped playing and he's still doing it. And the Vienna Philharmonic being the organization it was, you know, Clemens Helsberg said, right, okay. Uh, <clears throat> and called the conductor in for a bit of a chat. At which point the conductor kept asking us to play more. Well, there you go. When I was in the London Symphony, the, I have to say, the loudest, the loudest that uh, I ever was asked to play, and you know what, jo, I think Joe Lessie thinks this as well, was with Colin Davis at the end of Brown's Second Symphony. And Colin Davis said, Ian, that's yours. Drive it. You take it. You go. You go. You do this. And I thought, wow, this is, this is kind of like too much. Um, so that was the one instance. The other one was with also with Colin Davis at the end of, by the way, Colin Davis, I loved, I miss. He was a gentleman and he was a great, great musician. And um, what a lot of people don't know, 
In fact, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that he was Karajan's replacement of choice in the Berlin Philharmonic. He was the one that Karajan wanted to succeed him. A great musician. And he also was stolen by the London Symphony Orchestra, and this I do know for a fact, under the noses of the New York Philharmonic. He'd agreed to become... Um, He'd agreed to become uh, music director of the New York Philharmonic. Indeed, he was in New York. And Sir Clive Givenson um, flew to New York and said, Colin, don't sign the contract. The LSO loves you. It's your home. We want you. And shoved a contract under his nose. And Colin just didn't say anything about it and just signed it. And so that's how that happened. And we loved him. What an amazing relationship that was. And we did Brooklyn Nine, and you know, bam, beam, ba, bam, beep at the end, you know, the trombones. And I was thinking, boy, God, he wants this loud. He really, ooh. And even I was thinking, ah, this. we went to Vienna and did that. And, um, and the critics said that the London Symphony Orchestra brass section reminded him that he needed to go to the dentist. <laughs> Uh, maybe it was the same critic that described the Chicago Symphony Orchestra trombone section recently as what was like a drunk beer tent yodeler joining in with the church choir. <laughs> maybe it was the same one. They are harsh in Vienna, it has to be said. Um, so they're cases of, of, of balance kind of going the other way. Um, I guess I should probably draw some conclusions to this now. As you can see with all of these podcasts, I do try and see um, things from every angle. And I do see from the point of view of the composer, we need to know the score. I do see it from the point of view of the conductor, who has a right to have a concept of sound, who has a right not to have trombone section playing long, broad, dark, uh, with noise pollution covering everything, no matter how good the sound is. And I do see, from our point of view, the caring, caring, disciplined, conscientious musician who goes home and practices and tries to do their best for their colleagues and for the orchestra. Um, so they're just some things for us to think about, to, to chew over some interesting things. If there are any um, issues that arise from this please feel free to contact me i'd be happy to discuss this further hope you enjoyed that i quite enjoyed doing it so there you go i hope you enjoyed that if there are any issues that you found particularly interesting don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff